Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. Get great fall savings on all your home care and entertaining needs during the fall home care event at Safeway. Head into Safeway and get deals on products like Clorox disinfecting wipes, Swiffer wet mopping cloths, Lysol all-purpose cleaner, Swiffer wet jet mopping pads, Mr. Clean multi-surface cleaner, or Lysol power toilet bowl cleaner. Visit Safeway.com or head into your local store for more details. Offers expire October 31st. Restriction supply promotions may vary. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Which Kelly are you? I photograph what my conscience asks me to. Len, they want to have him in the movie! Mad Max 2. It's my kind of movie. Shut up! Shut up! Your friend can't come back, Sarge. Oh, he's disabled. I'm this carer. You're blind. He's an equal opportunity employer. The kids who are sick cannot do the hip-hop anymore. Welcome to another episode of The Curb, the podcast that takes a look at Australian culture, history, politics, uh, films, everything, and discusses them with the people who help make it happen. This podcast is proudly recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region and they pay respects to their elders, both past, present and emerging. On this particular episode, I catch up with Batur, an Afghani photojournalist who has won a Walkley Award for his images uh, that he captured on his own personal refugee boat journey to Australia. Um, the documentary that he has made himself, Batur, A Refugee Journey, is a really powerful film and one that I highly recommend seeking out. It is screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, pending all things that are happening, lockdown across Australia at the moment, hopefully it will be happening in person uh, on the... Tw- well. Next week is supposed to be the time that's supposed to be kicking off, um, but nonetheless, you can head over to mdff.org.au for more details uh, and to keep up to date of what's going on, and also the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on Facebook and on Twitter uh, for all details about screenings and things like that. I really appreciated the time that I was able to spend talking with Batur about his uh, his photography, his experience in Afghanistan, his experience of uh taking photos of difficult circumstances and most importantly um, you know there is something about having this particular discussion and releasing this particular film at a time where the Australian government is effectively denying the Afghani citizens who assisted Australian soldiers uh, in the, the the fight and the battle against the Taliban in Afghanistan, um, the chance to actually become Australian citizens, uh, the chance to have refuge and sanctuary here in Australia. And they're being forced to go through this long bureaucratic process, all the while uh, there is a death sentence hanging over their heads. And so this particular film is very timely, it's very poignant and um, very important. And hopefully uh, you can have the chance to seek it out and watch it and learn from it as well. And if not, uh, hopefully you enjoy and appreciate this discussion as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, first of all, for making it, uh, because I know it's um, it's probably a very hard thing to be able to put yourself out in such a way, um, you know, both uh, through a documentary, but you've done so much work um, with TED Talks and things like that as well. So 
It's yeah. going to be hard to put yourself out there. So thank you for that. Yeah. Pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. Great. All right. Let's um let's jump into it. Look, I usually just kind of do a freeform discussion kind of thing as well. Um, okay. So if there's anything specific that you want to bring up or talk about, just let me know and we will touch on it and go from there. Okay. Sure. No worries. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. So. Your history is quite a fascinating one, um, and I want to touch on the photography aspect first of all, because uh, as we see in this documentary, you're, you're quite a profound document um, photographer. You make some really quite brilliant um, photos there. How did you, did you always have an interest in getting into photography? Was that kind of a, a keen interest for you? Uh, surprisingly, that I when I was growing up, so I never thought that I will become a photographer, even like in family settings or among friends, like in those time, like, I mean, 30 years ago, 25 years ago. So when we used to go for picnics or something like that time, like we, the only point and shoot film cameras were popular and available to like within our community. So, so even with that cameras, I was not the photographer often. So it was others like I never like knew how to do that or like the others used to take photos or they thought they are good, uh, not in families, uh, within family or with friends. But uh, I always wanted, I was always interested in art. So I was growing up uh, like I liked drawings and painting and also uh, I participated in school like kind of theatres like play a couple of them and like my most interest was there so I wanted to become an actor or model so and I wanted my fashion photos to be or portfolio to be taken by a photographer which I learned later on oh there are professional photographers who take photos and but they were pretty expensive I could not afford uh when the September 11 attack happened and I was 18 years old around 17 18 years old and I had an opportunity to work with the, these journalists and then like often journalists were paired with a photographer. So I saw that these photographers with giant lenses and big cameras. Uh, so then like I, when I earned that money and I thought where I should, what should I do? So uh, one of my friend, he bought a camera. He said like, oh, I want to spend my money on a camera. And I said, okay. Maybe, yeah, that's a good idea. I will do it as well. So I, I took that and then we start, I started doing, like both of us, we started doing kind of uh, wedding photos and like kind of trial and error with film cameras. It was slow process until I learned it. And then I used to do wedding photos and like some street photos as well. It was very expensive to buy a roll of films and develop them and print them. And then in 2005, when I moved to Afghanistan, then I, I, by then I had a digital camera. So uh, then I explored documentary photography. And photography. So, so that was kind of the history. My interest in art or fashion or acting or modeling uh, kind of brought me here. So I, I became, uh, like I came on the, on the other side of the camera. So like uh, I didn't get a chance to be in front to. Yeah. yeah, do you, but you're you're you know you are so heavily present in your film here, uh, which we'll touch on as as we get further along in the discussion. But um, when you you approach like obviously that there is a huge difference in 
documentary photography as opposed to taking wedding photos. How do you yeah. approach the, the difference between the two? Did you kind of learn on the job or learn as you were taking the photos that um, how best to take uh, the most impactful photo? Uh, I'm a self-taught photographer. So, yeah, like both, like I had been kind of, as I said, like it was trial and error, like kind of using and making mistakes and then just redoing it and looking at work of other photographers, especially in documentary uh, thing. Uh, I was like, initially, I didn't know many photographers. It was only one or two doc- uh, photographers who were renowned. And like, I saw their documentaries on National Geographic and they were kind of the idols for me. And I was following, I was trying to uh, replicate their work or kind of copy their style in the beginning. So yeah, the, I think that was the guideline. And I kind of uh, it all came through trial and error until the later years when I I was already in the field for seven eight years when I had opportunity to join a couple of workshops uh, one in Afghanistan and two in uh, Turkey so that kind of was an eye-opener for me and like kind of opened uh, a bit more towards documentary. Mm. What was that like as well, having had, you know, seven, eight years worth of experience of self-taught experience and then getting to go and do a workshop like that? Did that kind of open your eyes and being, oh, I was doing something right or I was doing something wrong? Did that help in those ways? And it did also help build contacts too. Uh, obviously, you, you did a lot of work um, with, with different people, uh, different publications around the world and things like that. How important was that for you? Uh, of course, like the, that, those workshops were kind of very important and very, yeah, like, uh, as I said, eye opener in my career, because before that, what I was working was, it was, I was, uh, mostly working on short term stories, but like, I learned the, uh, more about the importance of, uh, uh, long-term to work on long-term projects as well so and also like I was introduced to different styles of uh, photography in within the documentary or photojournalism so that was very very good for me but before that I said I was very inspired by Steve McCurry like that was the probably the only or uh, the first photographer that I was introduced to and he was kind of like my inspiration so I was trying hard to like kind of copy his work and like probably if you see my earlier work maybe like you might see uh, uh, that I have been trying to kind of uh, follow that path uh, uh, but yeah like uh, then I was then after that those workshops my work completely changed so my style completely changed and they do not look like kind of National Geographic or Steve McCurry style anymore so like it is very different so do you feel that you've created your own style? Like when, when people look at your photos, do you say, this is me? <laughs> this is who I am as a photographer? I think so. Like, I, I mean, like, uh, so there are like many capture images. Uh, uh, of course, sometimes there are kind of uh, similarities. But I think my photos now, uh, I can say, even in the beginning as well, like, you might see inspiration, but it is not completely copy of of Steve McCurry. But that, I I would call that inspiration. But in later years, like I like if you see my photos, 
I, I can say that they are my signature photos. Uh, they are my style. And, and, uh, and also I am very open and not afraid of experimenting and changing my style. And that is for sure as well. So I, I keep doing different stuff, but I think there is something that which keeps, there is a, a, a foundation there always that which remains the same. And like I, I, I feel that like it is there. I, whatever I do, like that is there. That like uh, it shows that, that that is how I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So when obviously you're going from, um, you know, just taking a shot here and there, and then as you're talking about going into a longer story, a longer narrative of photos, what's the? How do you embrace a project like, you know, taking photos of the dancing boys, which is so. Um, intense the photos are so intense there is so much uh, history and narrative within the actual photo itself so when you're preparing for that particular project how do you actually engage with that how do you plan what you're going to do oh that was completely different project than any other project i mean uh, the actual documentation of photos didn't take that long that the research of that project and approaching like kind of homework for that to reach to these people took very long. I mean, like almost researched and tried to be introduced to these people for around eight months. So I didn't take photos. I was that my only struggle was to how to find them, how to get permission to take photos. And what I took photos, like the photos I took were just, they unfolded in kind of very, short period of time it was like within a couple of days or maybe weeks uh, but it was a couple of months uh, like to prepare and to kind of uh, reach to different organizations to different people who could be like more kind of engaging and communication with people in order to 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 find these people so yeah it, it's really um it's quite eye-opening for me uh, because i wasn't aware of that particular the stories that that were coming out and certainly after watching your film i've i've done a lot more reading and it's uh it's it's quite eye-opening and and um distressing in a lot of ways uh was there much pushback when you were doing your research and investigation um i imagine that would have been quite difficult uh this this was very risky i knew i mean uh, i could get killed for that uh, like those people involved are very powerful in countries like Afghanistan. Uh, they have their own private militias or they are powerful in, within the government uh, settings. And uh, I knew the risks there and I was afraid. Uh, but, and also uh, what I was surprised by, like I was also pushed back or to, like kind of... Uh, discouraged by people within the uh, human rights uh, settings, like those who are champions and work within the human rights organizations. And they, uh, they are there to like raise voice for those people whose rights are violated. Uh, in particular, I want to mention that uh, I, for, in order to reach or find these people to let I can, uh, 
complete our work on this project, I tried to reach the Afghanistan's Independent Human Rights Commission. So the deputy director, he, when I met him, he was a nice guy and he introduced me to one of his officials. Uh, so this guy, he looked like kind of educated or maybe he spent some time in, in the West or somewhere, like from his attire. Uh, when I said like, okay, yeah, this is my project. I want to work on this. And he was so rude to me. And he said like, oh, you are like getting funds or grants from the Western world. And I'm trying to bring a bad name and reputation to Afghanistan. I was surprised. Like you are the one who should be encouraging me to highlight this, that this should not be happening. And you know, like now you I was like kind of these sorts of experiences was very surprising for me. I can understand. Uh, yeah, how yeah. did you deal with that personally? Then I was uh, I felt very bad and devastated after listening to this. Like uh, I was thinking because I had been trying very hard to find these people, like to take photos and to work, to complete the story, but I was uh, continuously uh unsuccessful to reach so like i did not get any help so like they were uh, like i was hoping that these people uh would be helpful but uh, when i heard those remarks or uh, comments from this gentleman uh he like was very uh, like kind of hopeless that uh, i thought maybe i was thinking of giving up on that project because i had a six months period a timeline for to complete that project. For that project, I actually received a grant from Soros Foundation to to work on the which I proposed. It like it was my proposal, and they accepted that. And I, so I was about to give up on that project to and to return the grant money to back to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's good to see that the project was was done. You know, and yeah, yeah and these stories are told. But the broader story of the broader narrative of your film here is obviously a lot more than that. Um, I want to talk about how you made this particular film. Did you, because there's a lot of footage, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of photos of your journey, of the very difficult journey that you went through. Was there ever a point in your mind of what this would become in the end? Or was it just a case of, I need to document everything because I don't know what's going to happen in the future? Uh, because my background is not film, and uh, uh, when I had to leave Afghanistan, so my mind was, and I was thinking for this, I was thinking still. I knew about the project, I knew about, I mean, the, this this issue of migration, because uh, I, I belong to Hazara, Hazara community, or ethnic group in Afghanistan, so my people were displaced when the Taliban in 1990s, uh, took over Afghanistan and uh, did massacre of the Hazaras in Mazar Sharif in Kabul in like in in central Afghanistan. Uh, so a lot of people they migrated to different countries and uh, uh, like that was the first time a big number of Hazaras they tried to come to Australia by uh, YC and uh, I knew people. Uh, who drowned in, in the sea and went missing. And to this day, their families are still hoping and waiting that they will return. They are not accepting the fact that they have gone. 
they are gone and they are not alive, but they are still uh, waiting. Like now it is 20, 21 years or 22 years. They, they are still waiting and hoping that one day they will hear something, receive a phone call or something. But I knew about that project. So when I was in that situation, I went to Pakistan. So initial thought was I will live in Pakistan where I was born. And I, uh, at that time, uh, the, the targeted killings of the Hazaras was on peak in, in Pakistan. It was so bad situation. The Hazaras, they live uh, in an area which is like probably three or four kilometer area, like radius. is uh, lesser than what we were allowed in Victoria. Like we, when there was lockdown, we were allowed to go to like five kilometers radius. We, were, we thought we were in jail. But like that actual place is much smaller and uh, surrounded by military checkposts. Uh, and uh, still like terrorists were carrying out suicide attacks and targeting the Hazaras at the supermarket, schools, colleges, uh, at their business centers and like, in, in, like on public transport anywhere. So I thought maybe I will document that and I can live there. But so the situation was so bad that we were not sure if I will be coming back alive when I was leaving home. It was so uncertainty. And my family was very worried. And a lot of people at that time, they were leaving and uh, a lot of people were working or operating in, in Quetta to to, to arrange their trips to other countries uh, without any documents. So, so I also found uh, that I decided that I will leave and it was in my mind that I will document this story because I knew what has happened. And before, like already a lot of Hazaras at that time left and some of my friends just before I left, some of my friends drowned en route to Australia uh, just a couple of months before that. So I wanted to visualize this. How does it look like? That was a question for me as well. I did never saw anything visual except the big billboards, which was uh, of a, a boat, a, a fishing boat with full of people and by the Department of Immigration or uh, home, like home uh, of Australia. So they made all these billboards in 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 Koita and uh, put it in 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 Koita to discourage people not to come to uh, to Australia. You will not never be settled here. But they were killing here. So we have a very famous photo, like a bomb blast went off and people are laying and dying like they are dead on the ground. And in the background, you see that advertisement of Australian government. So I saw that image. That was the only image, a reference for me. Other than that, there was nothing. So I decided that I will document it if I'm lucky. I did not have enough money to have backup cameras or enough uh, memory cards or enough batteries to, to support. So And also did not have a yeah memory cards or anything to store the images. So I was trying to be very limited with my shoot. So And also I was not sure if the smugglers will allow me to take photos because that is a different situation. I will be completely at the mercy of, of, of those people's fungus. But I was lucky uh, I didn't face problem while taking the photos and the smugglers, they were okay. <laughs> so I was surprised by that. And I did document most of the, uh, the, the, the way of, the, of parts of the journey. And I also 
borrowed a handycam camera like if you see those footage the video footage of the the boot so like i i i i filmed that with a small digital handycam camera that i borrowed from uh, my sister so it was my sister's camera and like she said then uh, yeah I, so film was not my 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 idea it all came afterwards when i traveled uh, yc and uh, uh, our boat leaked and it was sinking. Uh, we went back, so the memory card survived. So some of those photos and images. And I was interviewed by Mark Davis from SBS Deadline, and he put together a half an hour documentary, and uh, so which I had access to those footages as well. And then uh, from there, like this idea came in my mind that I can work on a longer version of uh, and to 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 cover the whole story of what was it so that part where uh, mark davis covered was only just mostly because uh, for for that trip but uh what i was concerned was more to document the stories the reasons why they why these people are leaving and also the other uh, uh, hardship that they face through the journey and how do they go through uh, like uh, while they are in limbo the, how how their lives look like so i what i did then i after i was resettled in australia i uh, retraced my journey i went back to pakistan still the situation was very difficult and i found people who were related to to my story and like to find the reasons and also traveled uh, the way uh, again and like kind of uh, filled the gaps where I, I I saw like okay so what what parts of the 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 films are missing and I, and this time I had proper uh, gear and like I, I documented I, I created more footage and uh, and and stories uh, captured more stories of different people and those I met a lot of people like you 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 saw in the film so so those people who were with me in Indonesia or on the boat so I kind of followed the story all the way towards the end. Yeah. It's it's a long it's a long journey that you've been on. You know. Yeah. When you look back on it, can what's kind of your reflection now as you you're sitting in 2021 looking back on the decades that you've been through? Um it's got to be hard. Yeah. Uh a lot of people ask me if I am traumatized by those experiences, if those traumas trigger. Uh, but I say, I don't know, like sometimes it does, but sometimes it feels like a, a dream. Like like it happened to somebody else. An unreal thing. Like yeah. how could I go through so much? Because uh, like now when you are comfortable, you don't think that you can be that strong, resilient to go through and uh, fight back but for instance now i think oh i don't know how did i do that but yeah sometimes it, it it feels so unreal to me that how could i do how did i survive the first event in afghanistan or like how did i cross the border there and then uh, i saw people being killed in front of me in in pakistan and then i escaped from there and then uh, like i almost uh, drowned in in uh, in the sea and Still, I survived and spent uh, nights in jungle without food and water. And, like, it was so, like, everything looks so dramatic to me now. Like, sometimes I feel like, oh, that was just a dream. Or, like, 
like a, a fiction probably. So yeah, I, I think but it, it, it feels completely different. Unreal. Yeah. How is it for you talking about it as well? Now you've got this film out, you've got, you know, you've done the talks and things like that. Is it, is it easy for you to be able to talk about these events and to make people aware of what's gone on and the history there? Well, I think, uh, well, not easy is the right, not the right word to use, but, um, I hope you understand what I mean by the question. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know there are emotional uh, attachments to it. So, so those emotional strings get touched when I speak to this. Sometimes I think like I'm going to cry, but I try hard not to, st- not to do. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, but I think this is very important for, for people, uh, not only in Australia, but uh, internationally to understand that, uh, uh, what are what is wrong? Why these people leave? For instance, what are the mistakes? What are the reasons for uh, for these people to leave in the first place? Then, then I have come to a conclusion. For instance, I th- and I th- I also think this is there could never be the best time for this film to be released. Mm. I was going to say because it's perfect as, timing. As the US as, yeah. as the US is leaving, and like uh, the betrayal of that that country to, to Afghanistan and to the people of Afghanistan is, is massive. Uh, I, I call that a betrayal. It is. Because yes. they have been so unloyal and untrue to their promises and to the commitments they made to the people of Afghanistan. And they just are leaving at the mercy of the terrorists that they have been calling and fighting for two decades. And now they are they have just completely legitimized them overnight and uh, have empowered them with more power. And like they are, they are, so those Taliban, they are coming back with more power. They are uh, much scarier monster than they were in the 1990s. And the people in the districts they have been fallen already to the Taliban already being suffered they are being flocked for uh, different reasons for adultery for like like anything so it is just uh, and uh, women minorities children so they are like they are the the, the most uh, the prime target of these monsters and terrorists and it is just because i think the mistakes and failures of country like the us and the nato allies and unfortunately australia is have been in on that page as well and they've just kind of left the people who have been helping them throughout those years uh, with their missions, like to their soldiers uh, who have supported and uh, provided their services to to the diplomatic missions, to the aid missions, to the to the military missions, and they are just leaving. They are just left behind, and their families, then those people, they are just uh, there and waiting for their time to be ended. Yeah, I think that what I like about your film is that it helps humanize those people who we only hear about, well, from my perspective, we only hear about in the news and we know that they've been abandoned by Australian governments, by American governments. And as you're saying, it is a betrayal. It is a betrayal. These are people who have helped the U S forces or the Australian forces to uh, combat the Taliban. And yet they're being just abandoned, uh, um, which is just terrible. What, 
with the you know coming back to as you're saying there's that that billboard the australian billboard you will not be welcome here that that thing what's the um what's the perspective of the australian government from an international perspective from people who are trying to seek asylum here is it known how difficult it is to actually seek asylum here or how how kind of um xenophobic they are in a way uh when you are uh, in in a, in a situation that you're not sure that any second could be your last second and you could be killed with a bullet or a bomb blast or you could be uh, slit your throat so you will try hard for your survival and for your safety doesn't matter like how harsh policies you're applying but if if it is not australia maybe some other country like the burdens are on the poor countries like who are even not signatory to refugee convention but uh, countries like australia or america or the european countries we have moral obligation towards those people and uh, in the case of afghanistan it is even greater responsibility because the the mess created in that country is ours we have done that and we should take some responsibility we have already like kind of destroyed that and the the hopes that were given to the people of afghanistan they were shattered overnight the women rights the slogans that you have given them the human rights the, the education right everything has been shattered overnight and like uh, and you are not taking any responsibility now but there is there should be there and there must be some moral and ethical responsibility for these countries to take and like kind of help those people i think but the the the, the as you said about policies but people will try hard if they could get to safety if there's any hope that i can understand any. yeah yeah i i'm really glad to see that your film has sold out its first screening uh, so congratulations with that yeah. because i'm hopeful that it reaches a broader audience and it reaches an audience who are receptive and you've got a second screening coming up as well, which is going to be fantastic. What does that mean for you to be able to reach a, you know, a sold out audience uh, to be able to share your message this far? I think still uh, like, I think that that says that uh, people who are, we have people, we have, we, we have compassionate people in Australia who really care about this issue and probably who knows what is going wrong in our country uh, and uh, we have 30,000 people living on bridging visas chef visas and t- temporary protection visas even some most a lot of them they, they do not have any type of visa and during pandemic they didn't have any kind of support and they like they were just provide they were just helped by communities people charity organizations and the government did not take any responsibility towards those people and a lot of them a majority of them they are uh, from afghanistan the country that we have met mess in so like and we do not have any uh, we are uh, we are not left with any uh, ethical reason to keep these people on in limbo with uncertain situation anymore and with with those uh, uh kind of like we are torturing them we're killing them every day psychologically so i guess uh that the sold out 
uh, of the, so, uh, the, the session that which is sold out tells me that there are people who are supportive of this. It is only within our political system and uh, bureaucrats, I guess, there are a problem that uh, needs to be needs to have some humanitarian and humanized element. Elements. Yeah, yeah. I, I saw that yeah. Con had uh, from ASRC, the Asylum Seekers Resource Centre, had uh, retweeted about the the film as well, which is really fantastic to see because uh, personally, that's a, a a great foundation that has, from my understanding, has given a lot of support to people in Victoria who need the support. So uh, it was nice to see that his his tweet there has helped to uh, bring the awareness of of your documentary to a wider audience as well. Um. I wonder. I know this is not probably your area of expertise, but I wonder if you could possibly talk about the the, the fields that people have been able to get support. Because, of course, as you're saying, people in bridging visas, maybe not on a visa at all, were kind of abandoned by the government here in Australia over the pandemic last year. Could you talk about maybe the support systems that did come up in place? Was it kind of crowdfunding? Were there local community groups or charity groups that did help out in a lot of ways? Um, so first of all, uh, I think Con um, uh, has uh, kindly retweeted that, and also um, uh, he is also in the panel of uh, Q and so which which is great. So he can also shed some light on the issue which is there. Uh, but also, yeah, uh, during the pandemic, like organizations like Asylum Seeker Resource Center and other charities and like community groups, like from within the communities, they were there to support these people who were left without jobs, without any financial support from the government, without any health support from the government, without anything. So they were taking everything. So, I mean, like organizations like ASRC, community groups, faith groups. So they came forward and played vital role, as far as I know, like to support these people. Because uh, on my personal capacity and professional capacity, I'm, uh, I'm in touch with the, with, with the community and those who are, a lot of them, they, they were in similar situations. Uh, so I've been in touch and I know like uh, uh, these organizations played fantastic role in supporting these uh, people who were left behind. Mm. And I'm glad to hear that because, um, you know, it's, as an Australian citizen, it is really sad to see our government just fail on basic empathy, uh, fail daily on basic empathy, um, and fail a, a country which we're there to support. And uh, I'm I'm really grateful that your story is out there as well because it's an important one. So thank you for sharing it. Uh, as difficult as it might be, um, you know, thank you for sharing it, and thank you for sharing your your photography as well because it's. It's really impressive. I love photography a lot. So whenever I get to see somebody new, I'm like, this is fantastic. Somebody new to follow and to, to see uh, their work. So thank you very much for sharing. Oh, that. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's very uh, lovely to see yeah. yeah. Have you continued on with your photography here in Australia? Oh, yeah, I still I still do photography. Yeah, uh, But so, it changes uh, a bit, I imagine, like obviously from a different perspective. A lot, a lot, because... Uh, Australia is a country like uh, I have to fight on a different uh, fronts. Uh, I have to support myself. I have to support my family overseas. I have to uh, also do photography. I have to, like, there are a couple of things. So I do job proper, like full-time job, and I, I also teach photojournalism and also uh, I take photos. But I, I now I'm, like, after, like, my experience in videos, so I do a lot of uh, make videos as well. Uh, so... 
maybe I'm not working on those sorts of uh, very difficult stories that I used to do in Afghanistan or Pakistan. But it's still like stories I have done. Uh, I have been involved with refugees uh, mostly. And also, uh, like, not only just what they are going through, but I also have highlighted their contributions back to the country. So because we always get uh, negative negative news or, uh, like, uh, propagation uh, about them. But so I've been trying to use my skills or energy to to highlight some positive stories and to see like to show the real picture what is actually happening and who who these people are so like they are we are just like you and like anyone else living in in this beautiful country our blood is also red yeah yeah oh look i i've really appreciated your time talking to you about uh your journey and uh and i appreciate your openness as well because it's um I guess you know it's it's not going to be easy the path that you've gone on, but I, I'm glad to see your smiling face after seeing what you've gone through and everything that you've you've lived through. I'm I'm glad to see your smiling face, and I really wish that I could see more people safe. <laughs> you know that's that's Thank all I hope. Very. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. It is wonderful to speaking to you. Uh, fantastic. Thank you. So thanks for listening to my interview with Batur there, who I really enjoyed being able to talk to about his particular story and his documentary as well, Batur, uh, Refugee Journey, which is going to be screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Uh, the, as you heard at the end there, the first session is already sold out and there is going to be a second session, which is going to be screening on Sunday the 1st of August. Uh, all pending things going well the first session was on the 22nd of July um, and at this point it looks like uh, there might be some more lockdowns in Melbourne but if you have tickets uh, head over to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival website and uh, their Facebook page to keep track of what's actually going on there Um, but hopefully the 1st of August one will go along Uh, it is screening alongside Do Nothing and Do It Well uh, which is about uh, the story of Melbourne's radical Chinese cabinet makers and yeah that sounds really interesting as well I highly recommend a lot of the films that are screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. You've already heard some of the interviews I've done. There's more to come, even in an interview with Bruce Beresford. So head over to the website, thecurb.com.au, to keep track of all of the interviews, all of the details, and all the stuff that's going on. And as well, if you want to keep us uh, independent and keep us going strong and alive, then as little as a dollar a month helps keep us alive and going well over at patreon.com forward slash the curb au and if you join up at the three dollar month uh three dollar level then every uh two weeks you will get a short uh, audio review that i will do for a film that i haven't written a review for so that's an exclusive for people at that level um yeah thanks guys i really hope you appreciated this discussion and hope you learned a bit there uh and please check out the films if you can there is also some online screenings taking place uh mdff.org.au right now so even if you're not in Melbourne you can certainly check them out online well worth it doing so alright take care guys look after each other and stay safe
Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply.